Section twenty one of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume three, by James Boswell, Section twenty one. On Monday, September the twenty second, when at breakfast, i unguardedly said to dr johnson i wish i saw you and mrs macaulay together he grew very angry and after a pause while a cloud gathered on his brow he burst out no sir you would not see us quarrel to make you sport don't you know that it is very uncivil to pit two people against one another Then checking himself and wishing to be more gentle he added i do not say you should be hanged or drowned for this but it is very uncivil dr taylor thought him in the wrong and spoke to him privately of it but i afterwards acknowledged to johnson that i was to blame for i candidly owned that i meant to express a desire to see a contest between mrs macaulay and him but then i knew how the contest would end so that i was to see him triumph johnson sir you cannot be sure how a contest will end and no man has a right to engage two people in a dispute by which their passions may be inflamed and they may part with bitter resentment against each other I would sooner keep company with the man from whom I must guard my pockets than with the man who contrives to bring me into a dispute with somebody that he may hear it. This is the great fault of blank blank, naming one of our friends, endeavouring to introduce a subject upon which he knows two people in the company differ. Footnote. Very likely Mr. Langton. End of footnote boswell but he told me sir he does it for instruction johnson whatever the motive be sir the man who does so does very wrong he has no more right to instruct himself at such risk than he has to make two people fight a duel that he may learn how to defend himself he found great fault with the gentleman of our acquaintance for keeping a bad table sir said he when a man is invited to dinner he is disappointed if he does not get something good i advised mrs thrale who has no card parties at her house to give sweetmeats and such good things in an evening as are not commonly given and she would find company enough come to her for everybody loves to have things which please the palate put in their way without trouble or preparation footnote he said of a certain lady's entertainments what signifies going thither there is neither meat drink nor talk End of footnote. such was his attention to the minutiae of life and manners he thus characterized the duke of devonshire 
grandfather of the present representative of that very respectable family. Footnote. William, third Duke of Devonshire, who died in 1755. Johnson commended him for a dogged veracity. Horace Walpole records of him a fact that showed a conscientious idea of honesty in him. Some time before his death, he had given up to two of his younger sons six hundred pounds a year in land that they might not perjure themselves if called upon to swear to their qualifications as knights of the shire. End of footnote. He was not a man of superior abilities, but he was a man strictly faithful to his word. If, for instance, he had promised you an acorn and none had grown that year in his woods, he would not have contented himself with that excuse. He would have sent to Denmark for it. So unconditional was he in keeping his word, so high as to the point of honour. This was a liberal testimony from the Tory Johnson to the virtue of a great Whig nobleman. Mr. Burke's letter to the sheriffs of Bristol on the affairs of America being mentioned, Johnson censured the composition much and he ridiculed the definition of a free government, namely, footnote, Philip Francis wrote to Burke in 1790, Once for all, I wish you would let me teach you to write English. To me, who am to read everything you write, it will be a great comfort, and to you no sort of disparagement. Why will you not allow yourself to be persuaded that polish is material to preservation? End of footnote. For any practical purpose, it is what the people think so. I will let the King of France govern me on those conditions, said he, for it is to be governed just as I please. And when Dr. Taylor talked of a girl being sent to a parish workhouse and asked how much she could be obliged to work, why, said Johnson, as much as is reasonable. And what is that? As much as she thinks reasonable. Dr. Johnson obligingly proposed to carry me to see Islam, a romantic scene now belonging to a family of the name of Port, but formerly the seat of the Congreves. Footnote. This is a mistake. The Ports have been seated at Islam time out of mind. Congreve had visited there, and his seat, that is the bench on which he sometimes sat, used to be shown, Croker. On the way to Islam, Johnson told Boswell about the dedication of his plan to Lord Chesterfield. End of footnote. I suppose it is well described in some of the tours. Johnson described it distinctly and vividly at which I could not but express to him my wonder, because though my eyes, as he observed, were better than his, I could not by any means equal him in representing visible objects. I said, the difference between us in this respect was as that between a man who has a bad instrument but plays well on it, and a man who has a good instrument, on which he can play very imperfectly. 
i recollect a very fine amphitheatre surrounded with hills covered with woods and walks neatly formed along the side of a rocky steep on the quarter next the house with recesses under projections of rock overshadowed with trees in one of which recesses we were told congreve wrote his old bachelor we viewed a remarkable natural curiosity at islam two rivers bursting near each other from the rock not from immediate springs but after having run for many miles underground plot in his history of staffordshire gives an account of this curiosity but johnson would not believe it though he had the attestation of the gardener who said he had put in corks where the river manifold sinks into the ground and had catched them in a net placed before one of the openings where the water bursts out indeed such subterraneous courses of water are found in various parts of our globe talking of dr johnson's unwillingness to believe extraordinary things i ventured to say sir you come near hume's argument against miracles that it is more probable witnesses should lie or be mistaken than that they should happen johnson why sir hume taking the proposition simply is right but the christian revelation is not proved by the miracles alone but as connected with prophecies and with the doctrines in confirmation of which the miracles were wrought he repeated his observation that the differences among christians are really of no consequence Footnote. mrs piozzi records in answer to the arguments urged by puritans quakers etc against showy decorations of the human figure i once heard him exclaim oh let us not be found when our master calls us ripping the lace of our waistcoats but the spirit of contention from our souls and tongues alas sir a man who cannot get to heaven in a green coat will not find his way thither the sooner in a grey one End of footnote. for instance said he if a protestant objects to a papist you worship images the papist can answer i do not insist on your doing it you may be a very good papist without it i do it only as a help to my devotion i said the great article of christianity is the revelation of immortality johnson admitted it was in the evening a gentleman farmer who was on a visit at dr taylor's attempted to dispute with johnson in favour of mungo campbell who shot alexander earl of eglantoon upon his having fallen when retreating from his lordship who he believed was about to seize his gun as he had threatened to do Footnote. campbell who was an exciseman had in july seventeen sixty nine caught a favourite servant of lord eglantoon in smuggling eighty gallons of rum in one of his master's carts this he maintains led to an ill feeling he had a right 
to carry a gun by virtue of his office and from many of the gentry he had licences to shoot over their grounds his lordship however had forbidden him to enter his on october the twenty fourth seventeen sixty nine he passed into his grounds and walked along the shore within the sea mark looking for a plover lord eglintoon came up with him on the sea sands and demanded his gun advancing as if to seize it campbell warned him that he would fire if he did not keep off and kept retiring backwards or sideways he stumbled and fell lord eglintoon stopped a little and then made as if he would advance campbell thereupon fired and hit him in the side he was found guilty of murder on the day after the trial he hanged himself in prison End of footnote. he said he should have done just as campbell did johnson whoever would do as campbell did deserves to be hanged not that i could as a juryman have found him legally guilty of murder but i am glad they found means to convict him the gentleman farmer said a poor man has as much honour as a rich man and campbell had that to defend johnson exclaimed a poor man has no honour the english yeoman not dismayed proceeded lord eglintoon was a damned fool to run on upon campbell after being warned that campbell would shoot him if he did johnson who could not bear anything like swearing angrily replied he was not a damned fool he only thought too well of campbell he did not believe campbell would be such a damned scoundrel as to do so damned a thing his emphasis on damned accompanied with frowning looks reproved his opponent's want of decorum in his presence talking of the danger of being mortified by rejection when making approaches to the acquaintance of the great i observed i am however generally for trying nothing venture nothing have johnson very true sir but i have always been more afraid of failing than hopeful of success and indeed though he had all just respect for rank no man ever less courted the favour of the great during this interview at ashbourne johnson seemed to be more uniformly social cheerful and alert than i had almost ever seen him he was prompt on great occasions and on small taylor who praised everything of his own to excess in short whose geese were all swans as the proverb says expatiated on the excellence of his bulldog which he told us was perfectly well shaped johnson after examining the animal attentively thus repressed the vainglory of our host no sir he is not well shaped for there is not the quick transition from the thickness of the forepart to the tenuity the thin part behind which a bulldog ought to have this tenuity was the only hard word that i heard him use during this interview and it will be observed he instantly put another expression in its place taylor said 
a small bulldog was as good as a large one johnson no sir for in proportion to his size he has strength and your argument would prove that a good bulldog may be as small as a mouse it was amazing how he entered with perspicuity and keenness upon everything that occurred in conversation most men whom i know would no more think of discussing a question about a bulldog than of attacking a bull i cannot allow any fragment whatever that floats in my memory concerning the great subject of this work to be lost although a small particular may appear trifling to some it will be relished by others while every little spark adds something to the general blaze and to please the true candid warm admirers of johnson and in any degree increase the splendour of his reputation i bid defiance to the shafts of ridicule or even of malignity showers of them have been discharged at my journal of a tour to the hebrides yet it still sails unhurt along the stream of time and as an attendant upon johnson pursues the triumph and partakes the gale Footnote. boswell here alludes to the motto of his journal a while along the stream of time thy name expanded flies and gathers all its fame say shall my little bark attendant sail pursue the triumph and partake the gale End of footnote. one morning after breakfast when the sun shone bright we walked out together and poured for some time with placid indolence upon an artificial waterfall footnote. his listless length at noontide would he stretch and pour upon the brook that babbles by gray's elegy End of footnote. which dr taylor had made by building a strong dyke of stone across the river behind the garden footnote. johnson a fortnight or so later mentions this waterfall in a letter to mrs thrale after speaking of a pool mr thrale was having dug he will have no waterfall to roar like the doctor's I sat by it yesterday and read Erasmus's Militus Christiani Enchiridion. End of footnote. It was now somewhat obscured by branches of trees and other rubbish which had come down the river and settled close to it. Johnson, partly from a desire to see it play more freely, and partly from that inclination to activity which will animate at times the most inert and sluggish mortal, took a long pole which was lying on a bank, and pushed down several parcels of this wreck with painful assiduity, while I stood quietly by, wondering to behold the sage thus curiously employed, and smiling with a numerous satisfaction each time when he carried his point he worked till he was quite out of breath and having found a large dead cat so heavy that he could not move it after several efforts come said he throwing down the pole you shall take it now which i accordingly did and being a fresh man soon made the cat tumble over the cascade this may be laughed at as too trifling to record 
but it is a small characteristic tray in the flemish picture which i give of my friend and in which therefore i mark the most minute particulars and let it be remembered that aesop at play is one of the instructive apologues of antiquity i mentioned an old gentleman of our acquaintance whose memory was beginning to fail johnson there must be a diseased mind where there is a failure of memory at seventy a man's head sir must be morbid if he fails so soon Footnote. at the following easter he recorded my memory is less faithful in retaining names and i am afraid in retaining occurrences End of footnote. my friend being now himself sixty-eight might think thus but i imagine that threescore and ten the psalmist's period of sound human life in later ages may have a failure though there be no disease in the constitution talking of rochester's poems he said he had given them to mr stevens to castrate for the addition of the poets to which he was to write prefaces dr taylor the only time i ever heard him say anything witty footnote, i am told that horace earl of orford has a collection of bon mots by persons who never said but one boswell horace walpole had succeeded to his title after the publication of the first edition of this book end of footnote observed that if rochester had been castrated himself his exceptionable poems would not have been written i asked if burnet had not given a good life of rochester johnson we have a good death there is not much life footnote johnson tells how rochester lived worthless and useless and blazed out his youth and his health in lavish voluptuousness till at the age of one-and-thirty he had exhausted the fund of life and reduced himself to a state of weakness and decay he describes how burnet produced a total change both of his manners and opinions and says of the book in which this conversion is recounted that it is one which the critic ought to read for its elegance the philosopher for its arguments and the saint for its piety in johnson's answer to boswell we have a play on the title of this work which is some passages of the life and death of john earl of rochester End of footnote. i asked whether prior's poems were to be printed entire johnson said they were i mentioned lord hales's censure of prior in his preface to a collection of sacred poems by various hands published by him at edinburgh a great many years ago where he mentions those impure tales which will be the eternal opprobrium of their ingenious author johnson sir lord hales has forgot there is nothing in prior that would excite to lewdness if lord hales thinks there is he must be more combustible than other people footnote in the passages from johnson's life of prior may be found an explanation of what he here says a poet who 
tries to be amorous by dint of study and who in his amorous pedantry exhibits the college may be gross and yet not excite to lewdness goldsmith in seventeen sixty six in a book entitled beauties of english poetry selected had inserted two of prior's tales which for once interdicted from general reading a book with his name upon its title-page mr forster hereupon remarks on the changes in the public taste nothing is more frequent than these and few things so sudden of these changes he gives some curious instances End of footnote. i instanced the tale of paolo purganti and his wife johnson sir there is nothing there but that his wife wanted to be kissed when poor paolo was out of pocket no sir prior is a lady's book no lady is ashamed to have it standing in her library the hypochondriac disorder being mentioned dr johnson did not think it so common as i supposed dr taylor said he is the same one day as another burke and reynolds are the same beauclerc except when in pain is the same i am not so myself but this i do not mention commonly i complained of a wretched changefulness so that i could not preserve for any long continuance the same views on anything it was most comfortable to me to experience in dr johnson's company a relief from this uneasiness his steady vigorous mind held firm before me those objects which my own feeble and tremulous imagination frequently presented in such a wavering state that my reason could not judge well of them dr johnson advised me to-day to have as many books about me as i could that i might read upon any subject upon which i had a desire for instruction at the time what you read then said he you will remember but if you have not a book immediately ready and the subject moulds in your mind it is a chance if you again have a desire to study it he added if a man never has an eager desire for instruction he should prescribe a task for himself but it is better when a man reads from immediate inclination he repeated a good many lines of horace's odes while we were in the chaise i remember particularly the ode ehu fugaces he said the dispute as to the comparative excellence of homer or virgil was inaccurate footnote i am informed by mr langton that a great many years ago he was present when this question was agitated between dr johnson and mr burke and to use johnson's phrase they talked their best johnson for homer burke for virgil it may well be supposed to have been one of the ablest and most brilliant contests that ever was exhibited how much must we regret that it has not been preserved boswell johnson after saying that dryden 
undertook perhaps the most arduous work of its kind a translation of virgil continues in the comparison of homer and virgil the discriminative excellence of homer is elevation and comprehension of thought and that of virgil is grace and splendour of diction the beauties of homer are therefore difficult to be lost and those of virgil difficult to be retained mr e j payne says most writers have constantly beside them some favourite classical author from whom they endeavour to take their prevailing tone burke according to butler always had a ragged delphin virgil not far from his elbow End of footnote. we must consider said he whether homer was not the greatest poet though virgil may have produced the finest poem virgil was indebted to homer for the whole invention of the structure of an epic poem and for many of his beauties he told me that bacon was a favourite author with him footnote according to sir joshua reynolds mr burke speaking of bacon's essays said he thought them the best of his works dr johnson was of opinion that their excellence and their value consisted in being the observations of a strong mind operating upon life and in consequence you find there what you seldom find in other books End of footnote but he had never read his works till he was compiling the english dictionary in which he said i might see bacon very often quoted mr seward recollects his having mentioned that a dictionary of the english language might be compiled from bacon's writings alone and that he had once an intention of giving an edition of bacon at least of his english works and writing the life of that great man footnote mr seward perhaps imperfectly remembered the following passage in the preface to the dictionary from the authors which rose in the time of elizabeth the speech might be formed adequate to all the purposes of use and elegance if the language of theology were extracted from hooker and the translation of the bible the terms of natural knowledge from bacon the phrases of policy war and navigation from raleigh the dialect of poetry and fiction from spencer and sydney and the diction of common life from shakespeare few ideas would be lost to mankind for want of english words in which they might be expressed End of footnote. had he executed this intention there can be no doubt that he would have done it in a most masterly manner mallet's life of bacon has no inconsiderable merit as an acute and elegant dissertation relative to its subject but mallet's mind was not comprehensive enough to embrace the vast extent of lord verulam's genius and research dr warburton therefore observed with witty justness that mallet in his life of bacon had forgotten that he was a philosopher and if he should write the life of the duke of marlborough which he had undertaken to do he would probably forget that he was a general footnote of mallet's life of bacon johnson says that it is written with elegance 
perhaps with some affectation, but with so much more knowledge of history than of science, that when he afterwards undertook the life of Marlborough, Warburton remarked that he might perhaps forget that Marlborough was a general, as he had forgotten that Bacon was a philosopher. End of footnote. End of section 21.